Exodus 20, verse 14. This, of course, is the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's moral law as given to Moses by God Himself. And the Seventh Commandment, verse 14, says you shall not commit adultery. And then, from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, A little bit longer reading compared to that. Uh, Beginning of verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this even to forgive sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Lord, give us understanding and help us to apply uh, this, your seventh commandment to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the greatest epidemics in our time is not COVID-19, but the degree to which God's design for marital intimacy has been perverted and violated in our nation. Since the fall, this sin has been a problem. It's been an issue. But when we look out into our land and see the rampant perversion of what God has given to married couples, is there really any wonder as to why His judgment has fallen upon our nation? Now, if you're a parent, don't worry. I'm not going to go into all the details tonight about how this is the case and what that looks like. But we do need to talk about this seventh commandment. Uh, Its violation is rampant in our time. And lest we play the Pharisee tonight, 
Let me just also say at the beginning that to one degree or another, we've all committed this sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And James tells us if we've committed one sin, we're guilty of committing all of God's law or sinning against it. And as we'll see a little later, uh, surely you can confess that yourself, that to one degree or another, you too have committed this sin. So I want to talk a little bit about the commandment itself and then its relation to Christ and then offer a prescription uh, for this epidemic in our day and time. So first of all, let's talk about the commandment itself. Uh, The commandment simply is, you shall not commit adultery. And children, to put it in simple terms, adultery is the act whereby uh, two adults who are not husband and wife act like they're husband and wife. We We can safely put it that way tonight. It is committing the act of marriage with another person's spouse. And when two people do that together, both parties are guilty of breaking God's law. And, you know, all sins are heinous before God. Again, the wages of sin is death. But we we recognize that some sins are more heinous than others. And under God's law, God required the immediate death penalty for committing such crimes as this. In fact, in Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24, God prescribes the death penalty for committing this sin in Old Testament Israel. And we all, we need to understand uh, that there's more to the violation of this commandment than just committing the physical act itself. It's broader. Um, Our catechism talks about what this commandment requires biblically according to Scripture. It requires chastity, In body, affections, word, behavior, and mind. I'm not going to look up all the scriptures for those tonight. But I will mention 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you should be holy. That's what that word means. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And so it is important. God is concerned with what we do with our vessels, our bodies. He's concerned about the whole man. Um, talks about behavior, the way we behave. In 1 Peter 3, 2, the Bible instructs wives to observe a chaste and respectful behavior. Um, Jesus addresses this very issue in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Pharisees, we just read about a Pharisee in Luke 7. Well, in Jesus' day, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, um, they were concerned about the externals, right? They weren't concerned so much about the heart. And according to their law, because they added to God's law, they almost made it impossible to sin. And so Jesus corrects this in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew 5. And so in verse 27... He says, you have heard 
that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So notice several things. Number one, he talks about a man looking. Um, Men are more visual when it comes to this. And he says that a man who looks at a woman with the intent to lust after her, to desire her secretly, commits adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus teaches us that sin begins in the heart. He talks about murder and says the same thing. Later and elsewhere, he says, all of these sins, they come out of the heart. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. And that's what Jesus tells us here. And so, like I said, to one degree or another, all of us have committed this sin. We committed it in Adam when when he fell. And uh, we commit it personally. Even if it's just our thought lives. What we think and desire. What is off limits. As Jesus teaches here. And so that's a little bit about the commandment. Let's then talk about this commandment as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, because there is an adultery that is on another level. A different type. Um, in Deuteronomy 31. God told Israel in verse 16 that they played the harlot. How? It says they played the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. And so, in essence, to turn away from God and worship a false god is to commit spiritual adultery. Remember Hosea? God illustrated this spiritual adultery by telling Hosea the prophet to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute. She was going to be unfaithful to him. She was. And so God did this to illustrate, He required this to illustrate Israel's unfaithfulness to Him. And so anytime we go after something else other than God, when we idolize something, it doesn't have to be wood or stone or metal, that we bow down to. No, it can be an idol of the heart, something we prioritize and put before God. That's spiritual adultery. And so eventually God would give Israel a certificate of divorce. As Malachi 3 puts it, God hates divorce. By the way, adultery is one of the two legitimate reasons for divorce. Matthew 19 talks about that. Jesus talks about it. And the other is in 1 Corinthians 7, if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever desires to leave the marriage. And it's impossible for the believer to convince the unbeliever to stay. The Bible says God has called us to peace. And so this sin is serious, the actual committing of this sin. But there is hope, because we're talking about the commandment as it relates to Christ, right? And the other part of Hosea is that God tells Hosea to to pursue his wife again, his unfaithful wife, who has broken the covenant. And in Hosea 3, we find there that redemption is possible. 
that it says about Israel, just like Gomer would, they shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. Now God talks about putting a new heart in Israel and His people, and of course us today. And so there's hope. And so when we think about this, the, the scope of this commandment, the depth and breadth of it, we find what our Lord Jesus endured in this world as far as temptation. Uh, we find how He obeyed this commandment. We talk about His faithfulness, His fidelity to His God. Uh, he did not sin at all. He was tempted, Hebrews says, as we were yet without sin. And so he pursued no other gods. He was faithful to the living and true God. The God-man was. Um, he committed no adultery whatsoever. Even as we read from Luke 7, maybe sometimes you've been uncomfortable with that, but it was totally pure. This woman was repentant. She was sorry for her sin. She hated it. She knew He was the Savior, that He could alone cleanse her of her sin. And so Jesus accepted her worship of Him. And so He was perfect in mind, body, affections, words, and behavior. So He, therefore, was the Lamb without spot who could go to the altar and die in our place. It means when, when it talks about being without spot or blemish, it means he had no sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so then think about our husband, Christ. Christ who is married to his church. We are his bride, right? Ephesians 5 talks about that. This is what he promises to us as his bride. In John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Remember that promise we referred to this morning. Hebrews 13, verse 5, God says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Think about that. The, the way that we sin against God, how at times we're unfaithful to God, and yet He's determined, He's purposed never to leave us nor forsake us. That's important to follow away when we talk about marriage and faithfulness and fidelity in our marriages. And so again, as we think about how we've all sinned to one degree or another, think about in the Scriptures about the sin of adultery and the Gospel. There's the woman at the well. She had had several husbands. The one whom she was with was not her husband. She was pursuing her desires. Jesus says, I offer you living water. If you drink from this living water, you'll never thirst again. So she found forgiveness in Christ. And then we are told she left her water pot. She found that the Savior alone satisfied her soul's desire. Not sex or illicit sex. There's the sinful woman in Luke 7. We just read about her. And Jesus told her that her sins were forgiven. Go in peace. Have you ever known what guilt feels like? How guilt gnaws at your conscience? Your conscience is a gift of God. It lets you know right from wrong that you have 
done wrong. And it can be seared. But only the gospel and only Christ in the gospel brings peace to a gnawing, nagging conscience. Even for this sin, it is possible. And there's David, of course, he was the murderer. Why did he commit murder? Because he committed adultery. He fathered a child out of wedlock. and He tried to cover it up. And yet in Psalm 51, we find David repentant. He asked that God would purge him of his sin, that God would wash away his sins, and God did through Christ. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins. And then there's the prodigal. They say, well, how does, that, how does he figure into this? Well, he left home. He left his father. Why? So he could go waste his life and spend his inheritance And he ran out of money, had nowhere to stay, nothing to eat, so he was in the trough, in the barn with the pigs. He comes to himself, and he says, if I go home, surely my my father will take care of me. He repents, and he goes home. His father opens his arms, runs out to him, receives him gladly. Well, that's a picture of all mankind who have departed from the living and true God and committed spiritual adultery. And so the hope is that we have is that if we repent, He will gladly receive us if we go to the Lord Jesus Christ and return home. So as we think about the sin of adultery, as we think about how broad and deep this sin goes, and the forgiveness that we have in Christ, let's talk for a moment then about a prescription for this epidemic in our land. Um, I don't propose to uh, say everything about fighting this temptation here tonight. But I would like to offer several, what I think are several biblical things to fight this temptation. Whether it's literal, actual adultery, or what goes on in our hearts and our minds. First of all, be diligent in your calling. What? Be diligent in your calling. Whatever God has called you to do, to be a student, to be a homemaker, to be a provider, if you are diligent in your calling, this will help you fight this temptation. How do I know that? Because the writer of sacred scripture in 2 Thessalonians, or excuse me, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, Uh, records for us how David fell into adultery. And he begins by saying, it was at that time of year when kings went to war. That's what they did at that time. Where was David? He was on his rooftop, lollygagging around, checking out the scenery. He was not doing what kings do. He was idle. There's a reason. I think that this thing has endured through the ages. Maybe the Puritans came up with it. You know, maybe your grandmother used to say this. I know somebody in my family that says this a lot. Idleness is the devil's workshop. There's a reason for that. And so if we're diligent, that's not the fix-all, but that will help us if we're diligent in our callings, doing what God has called us to do. We won't have time uh, to uh, pursue that temptation. Second, I think this is obvious, but today it may not be. Maybe some have rejected this. But second, take care how you dress. Um, men, I'm guessing we can dress in ways that would say I'm available. 
or look at me. But more so, it's women, isn't it? I've already pointed out the way that Jesus expounds on this commandment. He says, if a man looks at a woman, and there's a reason for that. Men typically are more visual when it comes to the opposite sex. Women respond to kindness, flattering words, touch, all that. Well, men, they, you know, I'm sure, like I had an old preacher growing up, and he said, when Adam saw Eve, he called her woman because he said, whoa, man, right? God's creation is glorious. A woman is glorious. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11. And, and ladies, you, you really don't get to play the victim card. I've, I've heard this as of late um, because men will talk about this, the way women dress or barely dress and they don't cover up enough skin and all this. And um, the, the women will say, well, I, I feel like you know, it's being made my fault that some pervert looks at me that way. Well, as Jesus points out, it is wrong for that man to look at a woman that way. But it is possible for a woman to tempt a man to look at her that way. And it's hard, I know. I have a wife and daughter, and it's hard to find modest clothing in our day and time. You might have to learn how to sew and adjust and all of that. I mean, in Isaiah 3, God talked about his own people and how the women would walk around and stretch out their necks and give these looks and sway and God rebuked them. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9, it, it, we have this to say to us today in the church. Paul says, women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. That is, with discretion. Modest apparel. And so take care how you dress. Third, use discernment and wisdom when it comes to the arts. When it comes to entertainment, um, technology, and media in general. Be careful what you look at. Be careful what you listen to. You know, Chrysostom, he's called a church father. He's called Golden Mouth because of the way he preached and all of that. Uh, I remember reading some of his works. And he talked about how in the 400s, men would go to plays. And they were lewd. And the men would go home and be thinking about that in their minds. And he says, well... It's hard for that image to go away, isn't it? Um, songs can uh, conjure up in our minds things that are terrible. Um, you know, I was talking to someone recently. We were talking about you know the internet before cell phones and how life was a little easier then. Um, we are inundated with images throughout the day. We need to be careful. We need to be careful where we put our computers. You know. Um, parents, you need to be careful that you have no dark spaces. People say dark spaces as to where you know your devices are with your children. Um, know what your children are looking at. Put software on their phones if you can. Monitor their computers. Keep them accountable. Protect them uh, from the evils of our society. I mean, years ago I saw a billboard and it was advertising some wicked website and it said life is short have an affair and you go to this website and you you can imagine um, at the same time note this parents it's not if your children will find it it's when 
years ago, not too long ago. My family and I, we, were, we flew from Fresno to Atlanta. Upon our arrival in Atlanta, my oldest son, who sat a seat or two in front of me, got up and basically yelled at the guy next to him, a 30-year-old, and said, I saw what you were looking at. You're disgusting. My wife and I have done everything we could to protect him from this evil. And to our knowledge, that's how he was introduced to it. And by the grace of God, he doesn't struggle with that today. I'm thankful. That's what he tells me. But you just need to be aware, parents, of the evils that are out there. Uh, number four, if you struggle with your thought life or attempted, um, if this is a besetting sin, um, the Bible gives clear instruction on this. Ephesians 4 says to put off the old man, put on the new. Put off the old habit, replace it with something God. And as Jesus goes on in his Sermon on the Mount, he says after this exposition of adultery, if your right eye causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, here's what he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. That's how serious this is. Deal radically with your sin, whatever it is. You know, if your phone is an issue, maybe a flip phone is the solution. And if you go to a certain place and are tempted there, why do you go there? If you're alone when this happens, then don't be alone in that place. I mean, deal radically with sin. This applies to whatever it is. And in this context, Jesus talks about adultery in the heart. You know, our larger catechism talks about one of the sins forbidden in this commandment is resorting to or keeping of stews. Now, it's not talking about food. It's talking about brothels. We may not have stews. Maybe we have no viral stews, digital stews in our lives. In Romans 6, 13, it says, Do not present your members, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness. And so we keep our eyes off the harlot. We make a covenant with our eyes like Job did in Job 31. We keep our eyes off the harlot and keep our eyes on Christ. That's the solution. In Galatians 5.16, it says um, to be filled with the Spirit and you will not commit the lust of the flesh. But also I want to say something to parents and parents-to-be. Teach your children when the time is right about God's glorious design for physical intimacy. I don't think we've done that in the church, at least the churches I've been in. I can't recall hearing a sermon in my context on the Song of Solomon, which is about Christ and the church, but also you can't deny it's about the relationship between husband and wife and 
the joys that God has given to husband and wife. And there are ways to do this if you need some help. So I, I know of some. How do you know if the time is right? Well, when your children enter into puberty, that, that's a pretty good time. Probably before that, if they start asking questions or if they notice things and you notice that they're noticing, that's a good time to have the chat. If you're more comfortable, dads, maybe you have it with the son and moms, you have that chat with the daughter. In Hebrews 13.4, it says that marriage is to be honored by all. And it talks about the marriage bed. If you don't teach your children, someone will. I won't tell you about how I learned growing up when I was probably eight years old. Very crude. Um, When I was in the sixth grade in public school, they threw us on a bus, sent us to Fernbank. If you know what Fernbank is, the Science Center in Decatur. I didn't get a godly introduction to it. And so parents have this responsibility and privilege. Um, Warn your children about the immoral woman and about the adulterer in Proverbs 5 and 6, where it says that, um, you know, her stairs lead to Sheol, to hell. And so the seriousness of it is to be uh, taught as well. And then, you know, I struggled with this. Um, We also talk about in our circles the undue delay of marriage. My daughter just got married on August the 6th. She's still happily married. We're thankful. Um, But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking about this issue. And he says it's better to marry than to burn. Have an inferno. Now, yeah, you might have a checklist for your child when they want to get married and all of that. But ultimately, we, we should not delay marriage unduly. That is the case in our society. You know, you have to have you know, 100000 in the bank. You've got to have your apartment house. You've got to have everything in order. And uh, then you can get married. Maybe, maybe. And then maybe have children. Well, God doesn't teach that in His Word. We're to have wisdom, yes. And plan, yes. Um, apply godly wisdom with your relationships with the opposite sex. Um, Ephesians 5.3 says that there's not to be even a hint of sexual immorality among us. And uh, some talk about the Pence rule, uh, Vice President Pence, which was really the Billy Graham rule, which was Billy Graham's practice of not spending time alone with the opposite sex, unless it was his wife or family member, so that he didn't have that appearance of evil, nor would he be accused of doing that evil. And then... Pursue your spouse. Pursue your spouse. Like Jesus pursues us. Even when we walk away from Christ, maybe during the day, He always goes after the lost sheep. And we sin against Him and He still forgives us. Um, He never will leave us nor forsake us. And in Proverbs 5.18 it says this, let your fountain be blessed. Now this is the father in Proverbs talking to his son. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. 
and always be enraptured with her love. Pursue your spouse. Wives need to remember that sometimes husbands need to obey Scripture and husbands need to remember that their wives are not concubines. As one says, intimacy begins in the kitchen. And your spouse is your friend. Your spouse completes you in the biblical sense. So let us remember that. And so then as we think about this commandment tonight, whether um, you're the one who has never really struggled with this commandment, or this sin, or you've committed it in one way or another, or you're struggling with your thought life, remember that we are all adulterers by nature and deserve God's justice. That to one degree or another, uh, we are just like the sinful woman in Luke 7. And to the one who flees to Christ, Christ says, your faith has saved you, your sins are forgiven. And as Christians, we have the promise of Galatians 5.16, which says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And to that we say, glory be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess our sins, and we're thankful that you sent Christ to pay for them. And that when we put our faith in you, we are justified, we are completely forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you wipe out the penalty for our sins. And that you begin that process of sanctification. You begin to cleanse us from the pollution of sin in our heart. We pray that you would continue to do that in each of our lives and make us more faithful today than we were yesterday, and that we would have more love for Christ today than we did even this morning. We pray in His name. Amen.